So I'm really excited to welcome Meredith and Tia to the show today. When I actually first thought about doing this podcast, they were two of the people that I was thinking of and the organization that they're part of that I thought would be so perfect to have on the show. They are the founders of the organization Neighbors Against White Supremacy in Central Queens. When I actually met both of them, I think it was about three or four years ago now, at one of the early meetings before it was even called Neighbors Against White Supremacy, my head lives in the area. They've been doing some amazing work, anti-racism work locally, and they do so much around engaging other white people in this work and have a Facebook presence as well. So I want to give you guys like an opportunity to introduce yourselves. You can share who you are, how you spend your time, any identities or information that you think would be helpful for us to know who you are. So I'll start. Hi, everyone. I'm Meredith. I am 46, middle class, born and raised and currently middle class, heterosexual, white, Midwestern born, and have a husband, a dog, and two cats. Awesome. Hi, Rory. Thanks for having us. My name is Tia. My pronouns are she, her. I am a white middle-class woman, raised the South Shore of Long Island, lived in Queens my entire adult life. My family, including my son, has been in Queens for five generations. I grew up poor in working class. I'm a parent of a six-year-old. I'm married to a white cis man. I am newly financially stable in my 40s in a way that I never was before. And my working class identity and my identity as a former sex working person is a big part of who I am and definitely informs my organizing. Thank you. You guys are really awesome. Very thorough. I appreciate that. That's awesome. So I wanted to ask you, how did you first get involved with anti-racism work? My mother was pretty radical. I grew up with political consciousness, the great privilege of that, actually. My mother was very influenced by second wave feminism. In time as a poor and working class woman, she was very honest with me from a very young age about the limitations that she felt within white second wave feminism. You know, the class consciousness was a part of my upbringing and so was race consciousness and sexual identity consciousness. I mean, my mother always publicly and to me identified as bisexual. You know, I just kind of had a very conscious upbringing. So I say that because it's hard for me to sort of delineate like a sort of political awakening or an anti-racist awakening. I will say though that as a working class person was certainly doing political organizing in college that was sort of centered around gender and class. But once I left college, you know, was just working all the time and just trying to survive After I stopped sex work, I worked in the service industry as a waiter for over a decade and didn't really, didn't do much organizing, but definitely when I was interacting in political spaces, felt that I couldn't bring my whole self to those spaces. In part, it was because 
of my working class identity, because of my secret life as a sex worker, but also because often the spaces that I interacted in were very white. And that whiteness was not addressed. (laughs) And that felt something was missing. So my current phase of organizing really started after I became a parent and through marriage largely found a level of financial stability that I hadn't had prior. And I think this week's actually turn of events this week has me thinking a lot about this, that my organizing in this phase of my life has really been driven by my own grappling with a level of privilege that I didn't have in my life before. And the real need for me to confront whiteness, privilege, and white supremacy like in my own life. So I would say I started really feeling like I had to do anti-racist organizing when those shifts happen in my life. It's interesting because I think most that you had such like this consciousness kind of from when you were young. Because I feel like a lot of times that's so uncommon for many white children. So it's awesome that kind of you had sort of this consciousness that it doesn't sound like in your upbringing that many people don't necessarily have. Yeah, all the time. I mean, I was, it was such a privilege. Like I grew up with my mom married and my stepfather when I was 11. And he was also born and raised in Queens and politically conscious and a musician and a legal aid attorney. And, you know, I was blessed to be coming into young adulthood with parents who were like, okay, it's time to read Malcolm X. It's time to read Soul on Ice. You know, it's time to read Marx. (laughs) Um, It's time to read James Baldwin. So like I grew up in a home where... I was told that Black culture was the most important culture in the United States, that Black culture is American culture and is the foundation of American culture. And, you know, that's not to say that whiteness didn't impact my family in every way, (laughs) you know, that we somehow existed outside of our whiteness or outside of white supremacy culture because that wasn't the case, obviously. Meredith, what about you? How did you first get involved in anti-racism work? Much later than Tia. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in an academic household. My mom, my dad, and my stepdad are all academics. And in terms of background, my mom's heritage is Polish and English, and my dad's heritage is Jewish. And there was a conscious, unconscious decision to raise me as white that not to be a spoken identity, but my identity rather than Jewish or Polish or English. So that was a little bit confusing for me. <laughs> also looking <laughs> as I do, it was a little bit confusing for me. I got so immersed in Tia's story. No, okay. <laughs> Every time she tells it, it's like I learned new things. Yeah. Fall in love with her all over again. <laughs> um, I'm just, no, that's awesome. Just like when you first got involved, like, I mean, it sounds like you're saying it was later than kind of Tia's experience. Yes. So I had an early experience as a child that I sometimes talk about. So I lived a very white childhood. All my friends were white. That's not true, actually. But in my memory of it, all my friends are white, which is an important distinction. When I look at pictures, I realize that wasn't true. So whatever's going on there, (laughs) a lot of erasure. But I had an early experience when I was young of going to New York City's Chinatown when I was living in the suburbs of New Jersey. And that was the first time that I realized that I was something different than other people. 
And that stuck with me in terms of my whole research going forward is all about belonging. And so I always want people to feel like they belong. And so that's sort of center of my organizing too. But anyway, anti-racist organizing much later, awakening happening in grad school when I read Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking Me, Invisible Knapsack. My research on race in the workplace was also consciousness raising for me to actually have open and honest conversations with Black people about their experience in a very middle class. I was talking to them in the corporate workplace. So what actually it's like to be Black in that space. Ben went on to do work supporting a police accountability organization in Milwaukee, which was the first time that I was out in the world being white. Like I knew I was white. I was in spaces where it felt like a risk for me actually to be in an activist space as a white person because I was publicly being white right. um, rather than, I mean, everybody else always saw me as white, but I was sort of owning it. And then I got involved with Surge later and we can talk about that. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's awesome. So actually that goes straight into what I was going to ask about. If you guys can tell us a little bit about, so Neighbors for White Supremacy, which is what it is now, started off as Surge, what it is, what you guys do, anything kind of related to that, how it started. I'd love to tell just a little bit of the origin story because I think that the way we started is a way a lot of folks can start. Okay. So I was involved with Surge National for a while, starting in 2013, just acting as their tech person. And just for people who don't know, so Surge is showing up for racial justice, another organization. It's a national organization with about 150 chapters. So that started after Obama was elected. So I've been involved, wanted to do something locally. I was on the festival of the Garden Facebook page and saw some amazing comments by Thea and wanted, you know, had this instinct, which we should all follow, that when we see people who are saying good things, reach out, talk to them, build community. So we shout to Tia, rest of history. I let Tia take it from there in terms of what Nas does. Well, it was interesting because Meredith reached out and she said, oh, hey, you know, I saw you saying some like anti-racist stuff on our community page. And have you ever heard of this group called Showing Up for Racial Justice? And I said, yeah, actually, I've been going to their meetings. And I don't remember if we had this conversation in the messages, but we met shortly thereafter. We said, let's get coffee. It turned out we only lived a couple of blocks from each other. And I just remember, like, in order to go to these New York City chapter showing up for racial justice meetings, we have to get on a subway and travel an hour to downtown Manhattan. And for me, like, I want to organize in my community and I want to do this work where I live. I don't want to have to go somewhere else to do this work. Like the point of this work is for us to examine white supremacy in ourselves and in our communities. And like, how can we do that in a city of really 10 million people if we're sort of leaving our geography? And um, Meredith and I talked a lot about geography that day and the need to be rooted in our geography and in our communities, in our white communities, not to travel outside, but to actually stay inside and like do the work there. And so we said, oh, we should like start a little neighborhood, you know, be in showing up for racial justice, but like start meeting people in the neighborhood and inviting people in the neighborhood into this work of examining how white supremacy exists in our own lives and how it exists in our communities. And so that's November 2016. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of how you guys started. 
how would you describe the work that you do? Or give example, like a few examples of maybe some stuff you guys have campaigns you've done recently or some of the things you have done. So the elevator pitch of that, <laughs> we challenge white supremacy in ourselves and in our communities. And we do that individually and collectively. There are several prongs to how that work has played out in NAS. The beautiful thing about community organizing, like true community organizing in your community, (laughs) is that the work plays out dependent on all the different ways that class, race, gender, geography intersect. So for us, we're organizing primarily white middle-class women and reparations and wealth transfer has been a big part of our work. Self-reflection and supporting each other and challenging each other in that personal and collective work. And then broadly, and it manifests in many different ways, supporting Black and Brown organizers and organizations within our community. And that support can be financial, it can be logistical, it can be relational, it can be anything from crowdfunding for a campaign to being a shoulder to cry on, to getting a mattress to someone, to, you know, There's a hundred different ways that we try to show up for Black and Brown people in our community, in addition to showing up for each other so that we can do this work with integrity, with community, and for the long haul. I think that's so awesome, kind of how you're saying that, right? I think that community piece, right, is so important. And how, and you're kind of just describing, right, how you're working through and kind of supporting each other through all of these different things that are coming at you, right? All of these different things that are coming up. And so one of the things, right, having these conversations that are hard around race and racism, right, a lot of times it feels uncomfortable, right? Emotions like shame, guilt, anxiety, right? All of that stuff comes up with all of this work from your experience, whether personal or from just other white people that are a part of the group that you've seen, what's been most helpful when these uncomfortable emotions come up, right? What is most helpful for you to kind of keep pushing through, to keep showing up? Like, what have you found that's been a helpful tool or idea or strategy, something like that? I just want to share my gratefulness for Tia because I was raised to be afraid of conflict. And Tia and I have known each other now for over three years, four years, end of 2016, whatever that is to now. (laughs) A long time and in basically an activism marriage, like we know each other well, and we have are very different as you heard from our backgrounds. And I have never doubted anytime we've had conflict, I have never doubted her care for me, her, her love for me, like her respect for me. Like I feel safe in our conflict. I feel safe in our disagreement. And that is a lesson I've learned from her. I did not learn that growing up. And Tia has been doing a lot of that work in our group to help folks build up their confidence in conflict to varying degrees of success. (laughs) It's a long goal. So our group has really been influenced. I mean, of all the work that I reference in my own mind and that we reference as organizers, 
Tema Okun's white supremacy culture is, for me at least, the most referenced. And that analysis has really been a framework for Meredith and I. So white supremacy culture talks about sort of the foundational beliefs in white supremacist cultures. Some of those things are fear of open conflict, worship of the written word, the belief that bigger is always better, more, 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 more. What are some of the other really important ones, Mara, that influence our work? I'm the only one. I'm the only one, right. Only I can solve this problem. Only I can do this work. Only I understand what's needed. So, you know, I feel like that analysis and that work has been so foundational for us to understand what we need to build, right? Because what we're trying to build in our community is the antithesis of that. It's anti-individualist. <laughs> it's slow organizing. I think that's really, really important. Something that I see from white folks, from a lot of people, not just white folks, because we all live in this culture, in this white supremacy culture, is when people start doing the work, there's this like sense of like urgency and like, this has to happen now and we have to do this here and it's never enough. And we've been really intentional to say, no, that's not how we organize. Like we organize relationships first. If we can't relate to each other one-on-one, if Meredith and I, as co-leads of this group, can't have a healthy relationship rooted in respect, rooted in kindness, in wanting the best for both of us, then how are we going to organize other people? Right, right. <laughs> right? Like if it's not okay between her and I, then we have no business involving other people. And that sort of plays out between Meredith and I and the other organizers that we work with. So, you know, I think about when we first approached the group that is now our longest, was our first partnership with a black and brown led organization. You know, I remember saying to them, Mayor, like, you have every reason not to trust us. We have no urgency to do anything other than show you, than to earn your trust. If it takes two years, that's fine. Wow. <laughs> we have nothing but time. <laughs> and that's like really something you don't hear in organizing, right? In organizing, we always hear like, oh, this has to happen yesterday. This is, you know, we're on deadline for this. We da, 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 da. And we're like, no, from the beginning, we were like, we have to be really intentional and take our time. And the relationships are the center of everything. And so we can't accomplish anything unless we center the health of all the relationships that we're in, the relationships that we're in with each other the relationships that we're in with other organizations, the relationships we're in with community partners. And that's the opposite of how most people start organizing. Most people start organizing with like crisis, crisis mode. And how do you build from that? I think it's really hard to build for more humanity from an inhuman framework. 
Right. Right. I think that's so great, right, to really point out that that's such a great example of like a best practice, right? Something that if someone is doing this work, a way, you know, how do you build that trust? What does that look like? Where do you start from? All of that. I think that's really awesome to kind of just hear what that looked like and how the organization and how you navigated that, right? And just navigated what that was and all of that that comes up with that. So I thank you for kind of... We navigated that like in our own relationship. That's how right. we started. Right. So the next question I wanted to ask you is from your personal experiences doing this work, have there been any personal challenges that have come up for you, whether with family, with a partner, with anything that just felt really hard on you emotionally showing up to do this anti-racism work that kind of maybe affected you in a way you didn't realize, like had no idea going in or just something that was personal that you dealt with? Yeah, sure. I'll start. So I have been lucky in one way that my family and my partner have come along with me. So my husband comes to almost every potluck. <laughs> and, and part of that is because we don't have children. So he is able to do that. And my 87-year-old father is supportive. He's supportive. He asks me about every potluck, how it went, how I felt about it. And my mom was with me during Safety Pin Box. We, I can, we can add that as a now defunct link. But she did reparations with me. And so I have had, and I know that's, not true for a lot of white folks doing this work. So I want to send in my love out to all of you who are having family and partner conflict over this. That is rough and hugs to you. In terms of my own journey, there's two things I want to talk about. The first is that I have always struggled with self-criticism. So doing this work can activate my shame really, really easily. So it has been really important to just keep going on that journey. I've been in therapy for over 20 years and it's a lot of therapy. It's several times a week, and that has been really necessary for me. And I have to keep an eye on that. Tia knows how much I hurt myself, and she has been a wonderful support helping me out of those times and just being continually there for me. I have other people in my life, but feeling all this love for my partner right now. So I'm just going to keep expressing it. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's all, you know, hard. It should be hard. There have been times where we felt. Meredith and I as co-leads, kind of a lull in our group, you know? And I mean, to me, discomfort, conflict. And when I say conflict, I mean managed conflict, you know? Conflict, intentional conflict, or conflict in which conscious conflict. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. You know, there have been times where it starts to feel kind of easy sometimes in NOS. And when that happens, Meredith and I usually plot conflict or we realize that, oh, you know, when we're starting to coast is when we have to push so that we can grow, so that we can grow individually and so that NAS can grow collectively. You know, something that happens, I think, with people who are leading other people, but especially with white people leading other white people is people want to make Meredith and I like the experts or the authorities. And they, I think, want to like put responsibility for growth and change on us. And when we feel that happening, that's when we know we have to create conflict or create tension 
so that we can sort of snap everyone back into whatever it is they need to be into, you know, so that people don't get lazy. I mean, I want to say that a big part of like, this is an Intima Okun's white supremacy culture, but like, I feel like there's a emotional laziness <laughs> that's central to white identity. And, you know, we don't ever want to be in that place. We want to be uncomfortable and we know that that's the good place. I'm like too good about everything. I'm like, I'm not doing what I need to be doing. Like I'm not growing. Right. And I need to be growing always. Right. You can hear how Tina and I kind of balance each other, right? Like yeah. he is really good at pushing and I'm really good at sort of holding the result of the pushing and, but yeah. also pushing, but in a different way. But like, and Tia is really good at holding, you know, like we'd come at it. I think it's a really special thing that we. Well, we used to call it Meredith, good cop, bad cop, right? right. But now. But like we decided that, you know, we are abolitionists doing abolitionist work. And we didn't want to be using carceral framework to describe our dynamic, which we love and which we, I hope, you know, we try to wield effectively. So Meredith came up with... Oh, I didn't come up with it. There's a book oh. I love okay. called The Person You Need to Be, okay. Dr. Dolly Chu. And she talked about heat and light. Both are necessary and they complement each other. And I love that. We are heat and light because we reject carceral authoritarian thinking. <laughs> yep. I remember the other thing, by the way, Rory, should I? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. So it has to do with my choices in organizing. So I sometimes wonder, I don't know if I've talked to you about this much, Tia, maybe I have. I feel like everyone, when they are doing this work, they need to spend a little bit of time figuring out what their, what their superpower is, like what their strength is, and always be pushing it, like always be sort of meeting their edge. But you know, I mentioned I had this early on experience of belonging, of not belonging. And so my parents are divorced and it was a difficult divorce for, the, for everybody and not a lot of language around it. So a lot of confusion. And so I carry with me desire to keep people together. And I always wonder if that is a role that I play in my organizing. And I hope that's okay. Like, I hope the skill I learned from my trauma is okay to use in my organizing, that I'm not making things somehow worse for me, or maybe I'm healing something. That's a question I'm always holding. And I kind of love that you're pointing that out because I think that's so often what happens, right? There's all, as we're doing all this growth work, right? All this internal work, so much kind of can come out of that. And so much of that, right? Kind of like we, we're questioning, right? Kind of what's my role in this? How, am I showing up right? Am I, you know, am I doing this in the best way possible? Am I, you know, I really appreciate that you shared that too. The other thing I wanted to ask is through the work that you have been doing, is there a moment that you can pick out a success moment, right? A moment where you're like, this is working. Wow. Like kind of seeing change, right? Sometimes when you're in this and there's so much trauma, right? So much pain, those moments that you could kind of say like, okay, we're making it, there's light at the end of the tunnel or we're kind of, there's something that we're working towards. Are there any moments that stick out for you as sort of these positive moments or moments where you're seeing changes affecting people positively? I'll start with that. The focus is not on looking for, at least in my mind, is not in terms of looking for anything linear. And it's not in terms of looking at anything long-term, though the visioning is great. And it's weird because in my like professional job, it's all about outcomes, but that's not what I do organize. But the small moments for me super powerful. So the one that popped to my mind was 
and we always try and make sure we share these with each other is, uh, as you know, we're in the Facebook group, is when you got somebody new to pay some reparations. <laughs> somebody you wouldn't expect shows up and drops some cash through Venmo and they thank you, you know, like that, not, not that you want the thanking, but it's that they have been watching you do the work silently and all of a sudden show up. It gives you hope that there is some shift. That's great. I would say, you know, for me, I'm really like a process oriented person. So just, I love when like the process feels right. You know, it's been a huge accomplishment to work with black and brown organizers and be entrusted by them. I think about like the huge risk that black people take when they trust white women. <laughs> it's such a precious thing and it's always amazing to me when I feel that from another person, from a black person, from a brown person. And then I would say back to this sort of small organizing theme that, you know, Meredith and I just celebrated four years of holding a monthly potluck every month, never missing one for four years. And sometimes those potlucks are six people and sometimes they're 20 people. And one time, right after Trump was inaugurated, it was even 35 people. <laughs> the, you know, I laugh about that because a lot of those people never came back. And that's unfortunate, but we have a different metric for our work than just the number of people that we have at meetings. But something I think that people don't understand about real organizing is that getting six people, 12 people to show up every month for four years is like a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and I'm really proud of that. I'm really, really proud that Meredith and I have just been consistent and showed up no matter what was going on. Sometimes, and Meredith's never missed a potluck, actually. I've missed a couple. For very good reason. <laughs> but, you know, we're always, we're there. Like, that's something that we say all the time to each other. It's like, we're here. We're here, whether we're feeling bad, whether we're angry, whether we're busy, whether we don't want to be here. <laughs> that's a big one. We're here. And I think just learning to do that and doing that is something I'm just proud of. I mean, we're like, this is another Tim Okun white supremacy culture, right? This idea that white people feel that we deserve to be comfortable all the time. And so to me, that like showing up no matter what, whether I'm uncomfortable or comfortable is like a real triumph over the thing one of the manifestations of the thing that we're really trying to exercise from our lives and from our neighborhoods and from the planet. Oh, that's amazing that you guys, I mean, just the work you've done, the, the way that you've sustained it in such a way, right? I think just to be able to sustain it over that amount of time, you really need to 
like you're saying, have those relationships, right? That's a big part of being able to do that, building that community and really creating that. I give all that credit to Meredith because I don't think that it's not my inclination <laughs> to like be so good at that. And Meredith is just so consistent in a way that I really struggle like on a personal level to be just in terms of like administrating consistency, yeah. which like, I don't want that to come across at all as denigrating because I think it's incredible. You know, I think people want to be like in organizing or in like woke culture or whatever. They want to be provocateurs, but like showing up and being super consistent and doing like the shit work <laughs> is like a huge part of organizing. And it's not fun. Like it's not fucking fun. And it really is accomplishment of will to do that over and over again. It's also boring. Like <laughs> it's boring. I'm sorry. And it's a triumph of the will. So advice you would have for listeners who want to get involved, but are saying, where do I start? Right. Maybe they're not local to you, but it's general who are, are kind of at that place of like, I know I need to do something right now. Where should I start? Yeah. So my first thought would be, make sure that's an honest question. I, have a... <laughs> I just hear that a lot in my activism world, in my professional world. People know where to start. So if it is an honest question, a good place to start is educating yourself. And again, I bet you know what to Google to figure out how to do some learning about racism. You can Google racism. Um, and you'll come up with a bunch of stuff, but really I'm sort of echoing what I hear black activists saying, because a lot of black activists talk about white folks saying, I don't know what to do when really we do, but you're kind of using that as a reason to not get started. So I just want a little, little reality check there. Do you really not know what to do or are you delaying? So, so maybe the question is what's getting in the way of them starting is what yeah, they're asking themselves. That's, that's an excellent question too. And then just in terms of super practically, I really love the way we started. And I really love just reaching out to people you know and don't know who I'm a big proponent of the way we organize. So it's hard for me to like say it in any other way. But I think organizing, I am also a professional geographer. That is actually my <laughs> discipline. But organizing in place is really important. So really reaching out to your neighbors, having, getting people together in your home, but making sure that you are eventually slowly building, we call them accountability partnerships with black and brown organizers in your community, but doing, making sure to, to do some good work yourself. And I would recommend, so Surge at the national level for a while was doing a lot of great political education. I'm hoping they will be doing that again. Political education is education about how the world works <laughs> when it comes to power. But again, you can Google all that stuff, but there might be a Surge chapter in your area. And if you are wanting to look for community, that would be a good community of white folks to hook up with. I mean, I think political education is a big part of what we do with, like, within our small community. It's a part of every potluck. We read almost exclusively Black women practicing different kinds of Black feminisms. So I would say a starting point, too, is if you have a friend or a coworker or someone you go to school with or a neighbor 
who seems interested in exploring racial identity and doing anti-racist work, like commit to them to do political education together. And that political education can be reading a text together, you know, reading a book together, reading an article together, listening to a podcast together, and then really being emotionally honest about how it makes you feel. And also, to me, all work, and for Nas, all work begins with reparations. Like, we wouldn't dream of ever approaching Black or Brown organizers or organizations without first establishing a reparations schedule almost. You know, I think in this country, we certainly, when we talk about racism in the dominant culture, we talk about it as sort of like a personal problem. Like some people are racist and some people aren't racist and like, how racist are you? But it's a global system. It's a system that exists and that was built to steal resources for white Europeans to steal resources from black and brown people. And so for me, like I wouldn't, transferring resources has to be at the center of our work. And you don't have to be rich to do it. You can start if you have $5. I mean, we talk to people about like thinking about what they can give up. What comfortable thing do you have that's not essential for you? Can you give up? And that's your own money, but that's also social capital and access to white community wealth and then access to other resources too. Connections, you know, things like that. Like something that happens with NAS is we do a financial you know, wealth transfer, but we also do skills transfer and access transfer. Like, you know, people know how to build websites or people know how to write resumes or know how to do HR. And we offer those resources to black and brown organizers too, you know, not just cash, but also social capital and skills, whatever skills we have, even if it's just like rides, you know, like I have a car and I can, you know, make this situation easier because I can like pick people up and drop them off or whatever it is. I would just say the first thing to do is just start. Excellent advice that you're sharing. There's, there's so much that people can really do. Right. And I think, right. So just making sure that you're committed, that you're starting. And if you're feeling blocked, you're pushing through those things that you're not blocked and they're able to do all of these things in all the ways that you can do it and show up, be doing anti-racism and racial equity work. So just before we finish, I wanted to ask you if you want to share if there's any ways people, if anyone wants to support the work that you're doing, ways that they can do that. And if there's anything else that you want to add before we finish. So... You know, we are all volunteer. We will never be a nonprofit. Um, oh, yeah. no, 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 no. We're not interested in holding power. We're interested in transferring power. So you don't need to like donate to us or do anything like that. But we have some amazing community partners, the Caribbean Equality Project, which is the only Caribbean LGBTQ organization in New York City. 
You can go to CaribbeanEqualityProject.com and donate to them. They do so many amazing programs. They're right in our neighborhood. They have had an international influence because some of their members have gone on to become global celebrities, (laughs) including Dominique Jackson, who became the star of Pose, but whom we first interacted with as part of this little grassroots black and brown led LGBTQ organization in Richmond Hill, Queens. (laughs) And she's now, you know, has really had a global influence on people's understanding of black immigrant trans identities. So CaribbeanEqualityProject.org. I'm sorry, I said .com, but it's Yeah, and I'll post the links also so everyone has access to it. Um, We love the work of Rockaway Youth Task Force, which is a group for Black and Brown youth in Southeast Queens. They're doing all kinds of advocacy, intervention. They have an urban farm in the community. They have like a farmer's market. They do work in schools. They're youth-led and amazing. So that's Rockaway. That's R-Y, Rockaway Task Force, R-Y-T-F.org. <laughs> we love the work of Red Canary Song, which is a immigrant, Chinese, an Asian immigrant-led sex worker rights organization based in Flushing, Queens that does amazing work in those communities and is part of the larger movement of Decrim New York to decriminalize sex work. I mean, many of us are deeply involved in reparations work through Facebook. So I would say Gumball Machine, which is led by Chanel Helm, who is a Black Lives Matter activist in Louisville. Movement for Black Lives is always an amazing group to throw cash out, but also I just want to give money to Black women. It doesn't matter what they're going to use it for. They can have it. It's theirs. It should be theirs. It's none of our business what it's for. (laughs) And Black women should have all the wealth transferred to them. And you want to learn about how white supremacy impacts your thought patterns, try just giving your money with no condition to Black women and then think about the feelings they're having. (laughs) I mean, there are so many. No, 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 that's awesome. No, I appreciate it. Is there anything else that either of you want to add before we finish? I just want to add the my favorite surges values that I think we return to again and again, which is take risk and make mistakes and keep going. So we're so afraid of making a mistake and that serves no one. <laughs> so start, make a mistake, be proud of the fact the mistake shows that you took a risk and run and keep going. Learn to be human, learn to be vulnerable. Learn to be accountable to other people. (laughs) That's a really hard one. White folks, we have no reference point for accountability. None. And I'm not just talking about white men, white women. We don't have it. We need to get real and get in community and figure out how to show up 
for ourselves, how to show up for other people. And, you know, I think white people all the time, we want to know how we show up for black people, but I want to know how white people are showing up for other white people without anti-blackness being the center of that, right? How are we existing in community if we're not basing it on white supremacy culture? (laughs) The answer is we're not. So we have to figure it out. We have to figure it out. And that is personal work and that's community work. And the two are intertwined and you can't do one without the other. You can't really be doing personal work if you're not sharing that in community. And you can't be doing community work if you're not doing the personal work. Looking in the mirror is the hardest thing to do. Being vulnerable enough to look in the mirror with a bunch of other people, even harder. But if we want to do less harm and we want to build the world that we know is possible, we have to do that work. We can't be lazy. And any discomfort that we as white people feel examining whiteness and our own racism, because we're all racist, we've all been acculturated to be racist, that discomfort is nothing compared to the terror of being black in this country. So when you feel sorry for yourself and it's too hard, (laughs) you really have to put it into context. Thank you both so much. This is amazing. It's amazing hearing both of your experiences, hearing us share your story and the work that you're all doing. Thank you both so much.